Well, good morning. I want to welcome those who might be visiting with us this morning. Um, a hearty welcome to you. We're glad you've decided to worship with us this morning. Um, let us pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you this morning. As we open the scriptures, looking to you, Holy Spirit, to implant the word deep within us. Illumine our hearts and our minds to the truths of the gospel. Apply them by your power, your love, and give us self-control that we might live it out and not be ashamed of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I um, started with an analogy of my favorite track race, the 4 by 400 meters, and we're going to elaborate and add to that a little bit this morning. But I wanted to take just a moment to, for those who may not have been here, kind of where we are and, and where we're going with this. Second Timothy is Paul's last letter that he has written, Galatians being his first, uh, this being his last. He is in prison, he is in Rome, um, knowing that his life is about to come to an end. Second Timothy is about discipleship. It is about us being faithful to Christ and his gospel. And there is a race to be run by Christians. And that race is one in need of endurance and a sense of urgency. And it does not come without suffering. Paul's reason for writing to Timothy, yes, is because his life is coming to an end, and he is handing the gospel baton to Timothy. But in this process, he also gives a fuller meaning of why he is writing, and that is found in chapter 4, that he wants Timothy to fulfill his ministry. There's a list of imperatives that are given to him in verse uh, 5 of chapter 4, and you can look at those later on. This morning, I want to talk about four different things. I want to talk about shame and suffering, and about following and guarding. And in good Pauline writing, where he usually will talk about indicatives, the facts of what is true, and then he will do imperatives, so then, do this. He does that in this passage. You can think of this as a gospel sandwich. So we have shame and suffering as the top bun. And we have the gospel, which is the meat in the middle. And then we have following and guarding. So there's one encouragement and three imperatives. The one encouragement is do not be ashamed. The three imperatives, share in suffering. Follow the pattern of sound words and guard the gospel entrusted to you. Those are all imperatives. These are the things we need to do. But the reason we do those things is because what is contained in the middle. There is a gospel message contained in the central part of this passage. Now I could go on and talk a lot about being what it means to be shamed. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But it's the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that is the most important. Because that is what we are entrusted with. And that's what I've entitled this message, Entrusted 
with the gospel. Because whether you know it or not, you are entrusted with the gospel if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And so these imperatives here and this encouragement, don't be ashamed, share in suffering for the gospel, follow the pattern of sound words and guard the gospel, those are imperatives to you and to me if you're a believer in Christ. Now if you happen to be here today and you don't really know this Jesus, if, if you're just not sure, maybe you're here and you're just going, I just want to see what this Christianity is all about. Well, that'll be the heart of this message for you. And I hope that you will hear attentively to the words that are grace and truth that are given for you. So we are on this race. Last week I did talk about the 4 by 400 meters. I had to go back and look at the world record when it was done again this week and see how, it, how that race was won. And it was in 2020 at the... 2020-2022. Okay, I've already forgot. Um, that race happened and, and the American team set a new world record. Just over three minutes. I think three minutes and two seconds to go a mile. Now that is, that is phenomenal. Um, there is a strategy for track coaches when it comes to the 4x400. If you're not familiar with the race, it has four runners. That's why they call it 4x400. And the Olympic or the World Championships is in meters. It's not in yards. And so it's a little bit longer than a mile. It's about 1,600 meters. But there is a strategy that every track coach will take when they're putting together their team. They'll choose these four runners and they'll do it very deliberately. The first runner is selected because he is the most consistent runner. Not necessarily the fastest runner, the most consistent. You know, lap after lap, that he is going to be at the same time. Give or take a tenth of a second. But you know every time he runs, there's going to be no distraction for him. He's going to leave the blocks and he's going to head out and he's going to give you that 44.5 second 400 meters. That's a fast 400 meters, by the way. Your second runner, your second runner is going to be your best sprinter. You know, aren't they all supposed to run fast? Well, yeah, they are. They're all to run fast. But he's to be your best sprinter because something happens in that second leg that only happens in that leg. And you may not know what that is. If you watch the 4x400, each runner that starts the race has their own lane. So there's runner in the inside lane, then next to him, and then next to him all the way out to the outside. And they're staggered. Because you have to run further on that outside lane than the inside lane. So they even out the distance that's going to be run for them. But that second runner, when he takes the baton, at the 200 meter mark, halfway through, the lanes stop. And you get to go down to the closest lane to the center. And so you want that sprinter to get through that 200 meters so your team can have that first lane when it comes to passing the baton. Now the third runner is your next to the fastest runner. Not the anchor, but next to the fastest. He's the one that has just a little bit of edge to him or her. Him or her. 
they want to be the anchor. They want to prove that they should be the last one to run. And so they're going to go about their business with great passion and desire. And then, of course, the fourth runner is your fastest, your strongest. He or she is the one that is proven to tear the tape at the end. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Christian race, this strategy doesn't work. In fact, God stands it on its head. And I want you to listen very carefully because instead of the fastest, strongest runner being last, he is first. The first runner in the Christian gospel race is Jesus. He's the first one. You go, wait a minute, what about John the Baptist? No, John the Baptist was a forerunner. He's like a mascot. Here comes the one that God, that God has sent. Jesus is by far and away the preeminent runner of the gospel. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about him being the founder of our faith, the forerunner, the trailblazer. He has gone out before us. He has shown us exactly how this race is to be run. And he did so perfectly. Then he gets to the end of his race, the cross, the resurrection, and ascension into heaven, and the baton is passed. And the baton of the gospel is passed to apostles. In this case, in this letter, it's Paul. Paul is the next one to receive it. Now you and I are going, man, how do I even, how do I even compare? I, I don't even belong on this team. That's going to be the first thought that comes into your mind. But brothers and sisters, that shouldn't be there. That thought shouldn't be there. That's how shame enters into this. So the baton's given to Paul. And Paul is now going to run the race. And in this letter, he says that he has run the race, he has completed, and he has kept the faith. So he passes the baton to Timothy. And Timothy is the one that's going to take it now. And Timothy runs and he passes it on and on and on. Now the baton has been passed to you and to me for us to run the race. We need to run with urgency. We need to run with endurance. We need to run like never before. And you go, but how do we do that? Well, here's the beauty of it. Jesus was the first runner out of the blocks. But when he passed that baton, that baton that was passed at Pentecost, there was something that came with that baton, the gospel. And that was the Holy Spirit. That was the power. That was the love. That's the self-control that he has just told Timothy about. You've received that. The apostles received it. Timothy received it. Paul says, fan into flame the gift that you've been given. Stoke the fire. Raise the passion of going forward with the gospel. You have the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And so we see this from generation to generation. 
Therefore, we should not be ashamed. Which is the first layer of this outside, this exhortation, don't be ashamed. What does it mean to be ashamed? What does it mean to be ashamed? There's a lot of ways you can think of it this way. You might have a 10 or 12 year old boy. Maybe that boy was given a gift in his childhood when he was a toddler. He has a little blue blanket. And he carries that blanket around everywhere he goes. He sleeps with that blanket. He takes it on road trips. His mother, whom he loves, gave it to him. But now he's 10 or 12. He has a friend coming over. And all of a sudden, he didn't make his room. He didn't put things away. And there's that blanket on the bed. And he and his friend go in there. And his friend goes, is that yours? The boy, oh no, oh no, no, no. That's not mine. I don't know where it came from. Shame has entered in. He's embarrassed by a peer that looks down upon him for some way he lives, something he does. Listen to Alistair Begg this week. He talked about, took it to another level, talked about a girl that was going to school and she had a Bible and she put stickers all over her Bible. Things that she could relate to. Jesus loves me. Things like that. The stickers go all over the Bible. Well, she had gone to school one day and she left that Bible out and it was found. She went to school the next day and one of the teachers said, is this your Bible? I think it's yours. It looks like yours. Oh no, it's not mine. I, I, I wouldn't do that. So this takes shame to a whole nother level. There's shame that comes from just peers. You, you may not want someone in the workplace to know something about you. You might get embarrassed about something. Maybe it's a sports team that you follow or something like that. You're ridiculed for that. Well, that, that's, that's just shame that happens any day, like the blanket. But there's a shame that comes with the gospel. It comes with the gospel. And Paul puts it here, there's three things that we can be ashamed of. We can be ashamed of Christ, we can be ashamed of His gospel, or we can be ashamed of other believers. Ashamed of Christ. When Christ came to earth, we call it the incarnation, celebrated over Christmas. He comes, Philippians 2 talks about this. And though He was God, He did not consider Himself equal with God, but He became man and humbled Himself. We will talk in terms of humiliation of Christ. He came and took on flesh, though without sin. There was a humiliation, a shame that came with that. And so Christ goes to the cross after living a perfect life, doing everything that we were supposed to do. He was mocked. He was ridiculed along the way. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Doesn't he belong to Joseph and Mary? He can't possibly be the Christ. That person's more. And then there came the death. Do you realize the cross, crucifixion, was the most deplorable, dishonoring, despisable type of death you could possibly have? Do you realize as followers of Christ that there is shame in the cross. Hebrews talks about it. 
But Jesus looked at it differently. He endured the cross. He despised the shame that it represented. But Christians easily can get caught up in this, well, what are other people going to think about me when I talk about, you know, you're a sinner and you need the cross? Well, what's the cross? Well, you know, Jesus lived a life and He went and He was crucified. Well, how is a Savior crucified? How does He die a deplorable, despicable, dishonoring death like that and He is your Savior? That's something that we can be ashamed of. The other thing, we can just be ashamed of the Gospel. Paul talks about in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it is foolishness to the world. Foolishness. You'll, you'll bring up the Gospel, Lord willing, with someone and they'll think you're nuts. They'll think you're crazy. And you can be ashamed of that. You can be ashamed of fellow Christians. I remember first coming on staff here. Here's confession. I reported to Michael Wickland. Some of you remember him. He's associate pastor here. He's now in Birmingham, Alabama at uh, Briarwood Presbyterian Church there. Michael Wickland had brought in, um, it's called The Journey, something that was done at Perimeter Church. It's just a three-year study and you go through these things. Randy Pope put together this um, curriculum, this material, and it talks about doctrines in it, and then it talks about practical living. One of the things that he really strives to get done, Randy Pope, through this is that you will know your own personal testimony, that you'll practice it with others in the group that you're within, and then you'll be prepared to give that testimony out. Something you shouldn't be ashamed of. The testimony of the Lord, the gospel. Well, one of the things that Randy Pope likes to do is if he goes to a restaurant to eat and the waiter comes over, brings the food, he says, you know, we're, we're about to pray for the food. Is there anything that you would like us to pray for for you? I remember going to Cowboy Chicken with Michael Whitland. I just want lunch. <laughs> Here's my confession. Okay, I'll confess that I was ashamed of the gospel that day. There it is, right out there. Michael does that, Todd. And I'm just, I am, okay? That's wrong. That's sinful on my part. But I was ashamed of my fellow believer and brother in Christ. Because he's living it, I'm denying it. Michael prayed. The, the guy says, oh, wow. I... I don't know. I'm a college student. I have tests coming up. I, I guess you could pray for that. And Michael did with him standing right there. Every moment of every day, you are going to be faced with shame. It comes with the walk of following Christ. Each and every day. It's there. Some commentators like to go, well, it's a temptation that you'll always deal with. No, it's reality. We live in a fallen world. There is, Augustine talks about two cities, okay, or two kingdoms. There is a spiritual warfare that goes between these two, hammering away at one another. One going against the gospel using any means. There's no ethics, no morals on Satan's side. 
And then there's Jesus and His kingdom that comes with love and grace and truth. You would think we would be the ones that get pummeled. But that's not the power of the gospel. It goes forward and it reaches all those, the text talks about this today in that gospel center, that are His before the foundation of the world. So you know, like the runners of the race, that you're going to win. The final has already been done. We, we race this gospel race, this 4 by 400 and one of the things our track coach, Jesus, and the first runner of the race does is he says, oh, by the way, we win. We finish the race. We complete the course. We keep the faith. And so you have that in Jesus here. We, we have shame that happens to us each and every day. Now with that, that second layer, the first imperative is share with me in suffering for the gospel. How's that? I heard that S word. I, I don't know about that. You know the Beatitudes? We love the Beatitudes, don't we? All of us have the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, I like that. I like mine is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. I like being comforted. I want to be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Wow, look at the inheritance I'm going to have. You and me, we've got all of this here. Blessed are the hunger, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Doesn't that sound good? We're going to slate our thirst. We're going to satisfy our hunger. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Yeah, I want mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yes, I want to see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I want to be a son of God. But wait, there's more. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, excuse me. I like all those other ones. I don't like that one. And here's the irony. Right now we're living in a country that is absolutely free. Praise God for that. Praise God that we have comfort, contentment. But we live in luxury. We, we have things nowhere else on the globe do those people have. Where's the persecution? Where's the suffering? Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 15, if they hate you, it's because they hated me. If they persecute you, it's because they persecuted me. Where is that? It's non-existent because, brothers and sisters, we need to confess. We're ashamed of the Gospel. We're ashamed of Christ we're ashamed of the gospel message and we're ashamed of fellow Christians. 
We need to repent of that. I need to repent of that. That's why we're going through this project, the Vine Project. That's why we're casting a vision to make disciples and mature disciples that we get on this bandwagon of discipleship here. I talked about the four P's last week. Proclaim the gospel. Prayer. He, God uses people and we're to persevere in it despite what's going on. So share with me in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God. That baton that's given to us, that gospel baton has power with it. So when you start to be confronted with shame, you start to be confronted with the possibility of suffering. You need to understand that you are a child of God. That the power of God that raised Christ from the dead resides in you. That is amazing. That the victory's already been won. There's two ways to look at this. There's looking at the world the way it is, what you can see. And then there's looking by faith and seeing what isn't seen. In this passage, you have Paul sharing with Timothy to not be ashamed, to suffer with him, to follow the pattern of sound words, and to guard the gospel entrusted to him. Spoiler alert, Jesus did all of that. All of it. He was despised and he was shamed. He suffered like no one else did. He followed the pattern of sound words. All the promises made from the prophets throughout the Old Testament and that is spoken of by the apostles in the New Testament, he fulfilled all those things. He followed the pattern of sound words and he guarded the gospel that was entrusted to him. In his high priestly prayer, John 17, what does he say? He says about those who are his, I have lost not one except the son of perdition, Judas. But I'm going to the cross. I need you to do something for me, Father. I need you to hold them in your hands while I redeem them. He did it all. And then he set forth the example of how we are to live afterwards. So Jesus is our forerunner in many, many different ways. But in this text, it gets to the middle, to the heart of the gospel. And quickly let me walk you through this. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, listen carefully. When he talks about being ashamed, not being ashamed, and and suffering, there's a greater message within this text. It is by the power of God, the end of verse 8, this God who saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It says, For this reason, no, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death 
and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So here's the gospel message condensed. And it's going to tell us three things. It's going to tell us the character of the gospel. It's going to tell us the source of the gospel. And it's going to tell us the basis of the gospel. Those are three things that if you don't know Jesus, you need to hear. The first, the character of the gospel. God saves. Not we ourselves. It's not of works. It's God who does the saving. Jonah the prophet says salvation is of the Lord. And that is true in the Old Testament. It's true in the Old Testament. The New Testament is true today. It's God who saves. And He does it by grace. That is favor that looks beyond your condition. We have all sinned. There's not a single person that has not sinned. And there is a price that is paid for sin. And that's death. That comes a little bit later in this condensed message of the gospel. But the character of the gospel is that it's a loving gospel. That is God who saves us. But He doesn't just forgive that sin. This is what you need to see. And believers, we need to see. That He also called us to a holy calling. It isn't punching your ticket and saying, yes, I have redeemed you. You're done. Get in line. He called you to a holy calling. What does that mean? It means, bottom line, you are going to become like Jesus. He called you and set you apart. He saved you to be His own. And now you are growing in that grace, that favor that He gives, the mercy that He gives, and you're becoming more like Him. That's discipleship. You can become more like Him through the Word and through the working of the Spirit within you. That is the character of salvation. The origin is that it was decided long beforehand. Before God said, let there be light, creating the heavens and the earth, He chose you. He chose me. He chose an innumerable amount of people that would come to faith in Jesus Christ through us people proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It's all been decided. The race, the victory, it's all there. We rejoice in running in it. Now what's so great about this gospel is what it does. It abolishes death. It abolishes death. John Stott says there's three kinds of death. There's a physical death, which is our own bodies, there is a spiritual death, which is those who are separated from God, spiritually. And then there is an eternal death, which is both the body and the soul dying because they're a part of Jesus. There's those three kinds. So you might want to think about, where am I? We all still die. The last enemy, the Bible says, to be defeated will be death. 
but it has been abolished. Its power, its effect on us no longer rules and reigns us. Yes, we will die physically unless Jesus comes before we die. But it has no hold on us. It has no sting. To be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. And so, there is that. But Jesus answers the greater question. What about when I die? The spiritual death. That has been abolished as well. Jesus on the cross paid your penalty of sin. He saved you from that. Saved you from the power of sin that comes upon you. And He will save you from the presence of sin. That is the glory of the Gospel. He does it all. Jesus is the basis or the grounds for that Gospel because He comes and He abolishes death. So we have the character, we have the origin, and we have the basis of salvation. And that is a lot to have. That should create excitement in us. That should prepare us to follow the pattern of sound words, to guard the gospel. And we should want to proclaim it. That's the first thing that Paul talks about after this gospel message, is he says, I've been appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Now you say, well, I'm not any of those. No, you may not be any of those. There's no apostles anymore. You may not be ordained to be a preacher or a teacher. But you all are called in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 to be Jesus' witnesses. That witness comes with words. That witness is the gospel. Not to be ashamed of. Not to worry about suffering. It has the power of God to save in it. And that's what we're supposed to do. And we follow the words that are given to us. And we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Well, let me wind this down by saying this. We have the exhortation to not be ashamed. We have the uh, command to suffer for the gospel. We are to follow what the gospel in words given to us by Jesus. We're to follow that pattern and we're to guard it. And the way we guard it, the way we protect it, is to keep it pure from error. We're to speak the truth. Always. And Paul closes out this whole chapter by giving Timothy an example, which is quite interesting. Paul the Apostle knows he's going to die. He's passing the baton to Timothy. And then he uses an example of a person that Timothy obviously knows, but we don't have any record of this man doing the things that Timothy has done. He hasn't been sent to churches like Ephesus or Corinth or Thessalonica. He hasn't been his number two, Paul's number two guy. Onesiphorus is his name. And the example, I think, is to show Timothy that if you are in Christ, this incredible power that is within you manifests itself through Christian behavior. 
So here's Paul. Everyone has left him. Just like Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. All the apostles, the disciples, they left. They're out of there. It's just Paul now. But Onesiphorus comes. He doesn't know where Paul is. He has to search him out diligently. And he's not ashamed of the chains. Can you imagine going to Rome? Here's the Apostle Paul in a dungeon that Nero has already decided you're going to be killed. You're a fellow believer. He does the opposite that I did with Michael Wicklin. He's knocking on the doors. Hey, do you know where I can find the Apostle Paul? That very question could get him killed. But he's not ashamed. He doesn't fear suffering that may come with those questions. And it says that he is earnest about this. Earnest. And so, he finds Paul. I can only imagine Paul's face. He probably didn't even expect this man. And there he is at the jail cell. Paul, you have a visitor. And here he comes through the door. We don't have the words. We don't have it illustrated for us beyond the fact that he refreshed him. That idea for refreshed, it's like a breath of fresh air that brings cheer to a man who is chained in a cell. He's not ashamed. He doesn't fear suffering. He is following the pattern of sound words. Jesus said, you gave me water. When I was in prison, you gave me something to eat. You clothed me. When did we do this? When you did it to one of the least of these, you did it unto me. That's Onesiphorus. That is to be you and I. Gospel word, gospel deed. Changing the world for Jesus. Making disciples. Living it out. Let me close with this. We're entrusted with the gospel. It's been handed down to us. And I want you to think of something. I don't do object lessons, but I'm going to do one today. It talks about the gospel that's entrusted to us and it being a treasure. This is a treasure chest. I believe it belonged to my son Kyle at one point in time. But it's been left to us the contents of which are immeasurable, infinitely valuable. It is given to us. In this, I put this. This belonged to my grandfather. It 
says, Reverend Arthur Wilson. Still has the mark. I've left it in there. This was my grandfather's life verse. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. I know my grandfather passed before I was even a believer. This talks about the relay race that we're running for Christianity, for Christendom. This is the treasure. It is the Word of God that reveals God Himself through His Son that came, lived, and died for you and me. And He left us the entire story. Tells us how the race started. Tells us how to run the race. Tells us how the victory comes at the end. Would you live your life for Christ today? Would you run this race with urgency, with endurance? Despise the shame as Christ did on the cross. He could do that for the joy of you and me. We need to see the world differently. We need to see it through the lens of Jesus. We need to see the world out there as a sea of people bobbing up and down, drowning in need of the Word of God, in need of Jesus, to be rescued and transformed. That comes through this and through our faithfulness to Christ. Lord, help us do that. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you you chose us, that you saved us, that you forgave us, that you have called us to be like you to a world that is in desperate need of you. And we need the power of your Spirit to run this race, to despise the shame, to welcome suffering and share in it, all the while following your word and guarding it, keeping it true. Would you help us to do that? That, Christ, you may build your church and grow it for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.